Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. On the show today, it's properly jam-packed. During this little MotoGP break, we thought we'd take a bit of a deep dive into some other talking points within the motorcycle world ahead of next week's listener question marathon we have planned. We'll be clearing out the crash MotoGP inbox and uh, getting everything answered, don't you worry. But uh, for today, as well as looking at a bit of the latest news going around, we're going to be taking a look into all things MotoE. We know how much Keith loves that, but Scott Smart, the uh, former World Superbike Director of Technology is going to join us later on in the show and give us the lowdown on the revamped all-electric series and a whole lot more beyond that too. Uh, remember, we are still open for questions. You can voice note us, do it on your phone. Email is podcast at crash.net or just send us a normal email uh, along with your name and where you're from. If you're voice noting it, keep it to 30 seconds uh, and we'll get you on the show. Okay, the recording date is Wednesday the 24th of May. My name is Harry Benjamin. Joining me as ever is Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewing. But also joining us on the show to kick things off, we'll be taking a closer look at the new Women's World Motorcycle Championship that the FIM announced a few weeks ago now. And joining us to do that is broadcaster Amy Reynolds. Welcome, Amy. How are you doing? Thanks, Harry. It's a pleasure to be here and doing it with you guys. So yeah, excited to talk about the season so far. And of course, the new FIM Women's Motorcycle Watch. Yep. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, I mean, what what do you make of the the start of the MotoGP season so far? I mean, we've had sprint races introduced. It, it's been quite dramatic. It's taken me by surprise, to be completely honest. It's been way more open than I expected. Um, it was actually so cool to see that the last two rounds, there's obviously been a lot of chat recently that the interest in MotoGP is dying. But if you just seen the audiences and the crowds in Jerez and Le Mans, well... It gives big two fingers up to anybody with that kind of opinion, doesn't it? There's obviously still a lot of interest there. Um, and it just shows if you've got the right promoter, uh, what what they can actually do to a Grand Prix. But yeah, the racing itself has been epic. Um, I was really open to the introduction of sprint races. I didn't have like a strong opinion either way. Um, I was kind of more like, okay, well, let's see what they give us. And they've been strong. They've been really, really strong. It is, I'll hold my hands up and say that the only thing I found is on a Saturday now when you've got qualifying and the sprint race, it's kind of hard to then pitch the whole entire day to watch the rest of Moto2 and Moto3. So that was my only concern that I thought it might impact. And I would say maybe it does. So I don't know if that's had, I don't know if you guys know any more information in terms of like audience viewing figures on Moto2 and Moto3, whether it has any had any impact. But in terms of MotoGP, it's thriving. I think that it might be by design, Amy, to be honest with you. I think that the, in most other categories, in cars and the like, you've got 
Formula One and then all the lower categories are considered to be the lower categories in Grand Prix bikes. Moto3 and Moto2 almost take up as much time and as much prestige as, as, as the headline um, MotoGP. So maybe it's a, a, a sort of a hidden design by Dorna's marketing to, to just give that elite class that little bit more of a leap up and pull back Moto3 and Moto2 just a little bit. Uh, we'll see as it moves on, but I don't know how you think about that. It's a shame, really. I think anybody that tunes in every Sunday to watch the Moto3 races will know they are as crazy as you get when it comes to racing. Like, whoever wins on a Sunday on the Moto3 race, it's got to be pure luck, surely. Um, but I, I would... Yeah, it's, it's, it's... I mean, it's nice if you are a massive MotoGP fan that you can essentially follow a rider's career right from the start all the way up to MotoGP. So it would be shame to have, like, such a knock-on effect. I mean, like, this is just my guess. This is just my personal opinion. Obviously, you guys know I'm watching a bit more from home these days. So I'm actually kind of, like, living life through the lens of a fan now. Um, so this is just purely my kind of perception of a Saturday now is so busy it is sometimes a little bit harder to watch that Moto2 and Moto3 FP3 session when you've got so much else to look forward to in the day um so I could be completely making this up uh, in terms of MotoGP though MotoGP's been really 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 good and few few more like controversial storylines that than I expected I feel like Peko is getting such a rough time at the moment well, did you hear what he said recently as well? You know, the, you know the the difference between factory and satellite bikes. It, he wants, you know, it, there should be more of a, a disparity, really, because he's not happy that well anybody can win these days. Well, it goes back to the good old days, doesn't it? And they talk about the good old days all the time when there was like ten seconds a lap difference between the the factory boys and everybody else behind. I mean, nobody wants to go back to that. We've got what we we've got what we wish for all those years ago now, and and now you've got the the, the world champ turning around and saying that he wants a bit more disparity between the the um, satellite bikes and, and the factory bikes. Um, I, you know, Peko, I think he, he, he kind of let that one out almost by mistake, didn't he? I mean, I think that, you know, it's all very well having these thoughts, but it's a bit like the social media trend. You, you just never say what you're really thinking until you've thought it through to the nth degree because the second it's out in the open like it is, you know, once it picks up a bit of a, a viral following, um, you're slayed. And you're right, Amy. I think the same about Peko. I think he's having a hard time on several fronts at the minute. Um, he needs to kind of concentrate on what he's really, really good at and let the social media side of it get done by some PR somewhere to to try and take the pressure off of him a, bit, a, a little bit in that regard. I think he just, he said something that he obviously believes in and, you know, it might be handy and maybe it would be better. You know, we've, we've talked many times about Moto3 and Moto2 being too close now which are causing massive accidents when they're all so close. You know, there's another argument for the bigger disparity between the bikes will give us slightly more spread out racing, which will make it slightly safer. Do we want that? Mm -mm. No, not a chance. His comments were getting taken out of context then. Well, they could be. And we're talking second language again here, aren't we? I mean, there's things that, that, you know, and Peko does have a habit of occasionally firing from the hip. Um, Careful, Keith, he'll be on the phone again to you. Well, no, that's only if you write the headline. If you if you write yeah. <laughs> uh, because uh, earlier on in the podcast at one stage we were talking about the situation he had in Ibiza where he crashed the car and he'd had a, a drink over the odds, uh, and and I said well he's going to feel like a bloody idiot or worse to that effect and of course the, the to, to to get people interested in our podcast interested in whatever we're saying you pick the line out of it Pecco's an idiot <laughs> and the next thing we know he's on the bloody phone. <laughs> why, why it you, means he listens though. Why, we got to listen. Why are you being disrespectful to me? I've never been disrespectful to you. Da 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 da. Which is absolutely right. 
Um, and I and I said, have you have you watched the have you watched the podcast? Have you listened to the podcast? No. <laughs> and that's that's basically what happens with these you know headlines, clickbait headlines that we get in in social media. I mean, it is a bloody minefield. It's almost to the point now where if you were a superstar, you'd want to stay away from it, wouldn't you? Really, and just let the PRs get on with it. Or not. Maybe you wouldn't. Or not. Or not. Go on, Pete. No, I think that you're exactly right there about the context, isn't it? I think Peko does feel that because the clip was put out, wasn't it, by the official MotoGP website, but the, the question wasn't included. The question they, they really was, threw him under the bus, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, the question was about all of these early race incidents. and that, So that was the context of his answer. And uh, I think there's also a, a little bit of, let's say, it's unclear exactly what he said. Keith, again, mentioning the translation thing. Now, now I've sort of no one wants to go on record, but some people are saying he didn't say I li- I would like. He said something that was a bit not quite as clear as that. It was more like it would require, or maybe it's necessary for safety reasons, or it would be safer if there was a bigger gap. So it's not exactly. Uh, I'm afraid I'm in no position with my Italian to to tell you exactly what words were said. But uh, but yeah, as, as as Amy quite rightly points out, it, it is this issue of what exactly has he said here? What's the context? And I think he is feeling a little bit hard done by. So let's let's see. Maybe uh, I think he said, doesn't he? He's just going to stick to talking about about his riding in future. So that'd be a shame. Let's hope that he does still give his opinions. But uh, but yeah, certainly a storm we weren't expecting uh, after Le Mans with that one, wasn't it? Absolutely. I reckon I reckon Keith should be in charge of Peko's PR. I reckon he'd do a good job. He'd say it as it is. We'll get Peko on the on the regular just to clarify anything he said on the podcast. Happy days. All good. You up for that, Keith? You know me. Um, as I've got older, it, it's funny. There, there, somebody said to me years and years and years and years ago, because you're all youngsters compared with me, when you get old enough or wealthy enough, you don't have to give us flying what you say. Um, because basically no one can affect you. If you're if you're confident in your life and you you, you don't have to rely on other people to pay you, um, then you can say whatever you like. Um, Casey Stoner started that fairly early in his, his career of um, verbals. <laughs> Which is, uh, I mean, I have huge respect for somebody who's going to back up what they're thinking. I just think that I, I just think Peko's, uh, I think Pete's hit the nail on the head. You know, like how many times have we seen that translation, just slightly emphasised in the wrong way? Nuance in 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 languages is is important. I speak Essex. That's it. Nothing else. I wait for everyone else to inter- into to interpret whatever there is out there. Um, and I, I go back to what Amy said in the first place. I feel for Peko at the moment. I mean, he's under a lot of pressure. If it wasn't for the sprint races, he wouldn't even be anywhere near in this championship at the moment. I mean, he's he's had an absolute disaster so far. Plenty of time to recover. I'm sure he will. But the last thing he really needs is a load of nick, nick, nick. doesn't matter how strong you are either. I mean, getting back to what you just said about me being a PR, you know, when someone takes a swipe at me on social media, you feel it. Everybody does. You look at it and you see it and you think, are they right? You know, you question straight away. Are you? Have you said something that you probably shouldn't done out of, out of step? Now, with me, because I've got the memory of a goldfish, it goes by so quickly, and I've just forgotten it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it kind of doesn't have any real effect. But it does affect. All these riders are being interfered with mentally, with things that they shouldn't even have to be worried about. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's you know, concentrating on your job is is the bit that, that where they should be all of the time. But getting involved in a social media bun fight. Um, and us lot, as soon as somebody says something that might be slightly controversial, we're all over it. I mean, of course we are. Yeah. That's the job. 
Yeah, we are. Well, they did throw Peck a little bit under the bus there. But uh, as we say, you know, he it's happened before. Things can be lost in translation. And I'm sure he relishes the racing opportunity. Um, now, we wanted to talk about uh, this for a couple of weeks, actually, when it was announced. Um, so we thought we'd, we'd use this gap in, in the calendar to, to have a little bit of a talk about stuff outside of the, the MotoGP racing. And uh, the FIM announced, what, a few weeks ago now, the new Women's World Championship was to be launched for 2024, the first all-female circuit racing series at world championship level in motorcycle racing history. Uh Pete, maybe I'll come to you first on this. So what exactly is this? What have they said in, in the press conference? How is it going to work? Yeah, as you say, Harry, the, the Spanish MotoGP weekend was when this press conference came out. It was all announced. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I think it's going to be part of the World Superbike Series or under the umbrella of the World Superbike Series. Six rounds, I think 12 races, super sport type machines, all single make machines. The, the big difference here, I suppose, between this and 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 perhaps another form of championship, is it's not a ladder. It's not seen as being a, a way to get, let's say, female racers into the Grand Prix classes. This is kind of the destination. I think that was the actual word that was used. So this is so. the idea is that professional female racers will make a living in this championship and, and, and claim a, uh, you know, a world championship title. And I think they gave the examples that exists in motocross trials and enduro. But until now, it's all been, you know, it's, it's a change of tact, really, isn't it? Until now, we've been looking at, trying to get more females into, let's say, Grand Prix classes, this is something as an alternative to that. I suppose that's the key difference there. And that's, I suppose, where the controversy is for a lot of people. I mean, Amy, you, you and I both worked in four-wheeled sports as well. I know you've worked with the W Series, the the the, the, all, the former all-women all racing championship. And Pete just said it, said it there. That wasn't designed to be the one-stop shop. This is where you can spend the rest of your days as a racing driver. It was designed to, this is to get you on the ladder. It's to try and widen that pool of, of talent, especially from grassroots and, and rise up through the ranks. It was a sort of Formula 4-3 type championship to then get you onto the ladder. This seems like, okay, it is providing opportunity, yes, but it doesn't seem like it's really going to increase the pool and the talent going up the ranks, whether that be on the MotoGP side of things or the World Superbike side of things. Exactly. And inevitably, if that talent pool runs out, there will be nobody to ride in the pinnacle championship. So whilst I think any platform or opportunity that is given to women to get consistent racing experience, irregular racing experience. Um, they're obviously kind of pitching this as an opportunity as well where women could potentially carve out a bit more of a career. They've obviously not mentioned numbers. We don't know how much they're going to get paid and how it's going to work and things like that. But they have said that that's the idea of it. Um, and they have other modules like the Women's Motocross World Championship, which is really successful. Um, and, and and the women motocross riders can go on and have like a, a, a pretty de- decent career out of it. Um, but my personal only slight hesitation was it was that would perhaps the interest and and the money and the investment not be better made somewhere else a little bit more grassroots. Um, we don't know what the their future plans with this. Maybe they'll have something like a talent team, which will be you know within within the field, which will focus on bringing the talent through. But I thought the one thing that you really saw 
in the first year of W Series. And I'm wondering whether it will be a similar situation in the first year of the Women's Motorcycle World Championship is that there was a huge disparity across the field between the drivers that had had a lot of experience and, and a lot of good experience, so experience at that level, like F3 regional level, like your Jamie Chadwick's, like your Alice Powell's, like your Bites Gavisses. Alice Powell maybe like didn't quite show it in that first season because she had a bit of a, a funny one, but like she had that experience. And then the rest of the field, because they were so grassroots, they were so green. I mean, like some of them were coming fresh out of carts. There was just a huge break in the field and it was, you know, dubbed the Jamie Chadwick show, which kind of didn't do W Series any favours. That second year really pulled it back after the COVID year because they did manage to go out and find some really, really strong talent. But nobody knows what the plans are of Anna Carrasco um, and Maria Herrera, whether they would have any interest in this championship. We know that it's actually quite a dicey subject with rider the, riders themselves because most sport, in theory, is a sport where gender shouldn't have a place. So they might quite turn around and say, I don't want to ride in a, a women's only championship. I'm, I want to go and ride against the boys. But if they do decide that this is a place that they they will, you know, spend some of their career, then is there going to be a huge break in the field? Do you know what, Amy? There's so many subjects. We could go on for an hour with this, can't we? I, I'm really, really sceptical about making a, a, a separate series for, for a, a group. I think the biggest problem is, and you hit it on the head when you said, the pool is not big enough. Um, if we had a, a pool anywhere near like the size of the, of the, the male motorcycle side of things, we would find world champions female-wise. You're absolutely right. There's no bar gender-wise in motorsport purely and simply because it's not an out-and-out -out strength thing. It's not an out-and-out. -out. It's a situation where women can equally compete against males. I mean, we saw it in Anna Carrasco when she won a world title anyway. And I can't imagine her dropping back into something like this other than for the money. At the end of the day, you come to an age where you've got to earn enough money to see see the rest of your life forwards. Uh, and if there's big money in, a, in the woman series thing, then... Anna Carrasco might go back there and you're right, the disparity will be huge because she's been honing her skills against some very, very fast world championship contenders and has been a world champion herself. Um, and the other thing you said, which was bang on again, is is that whether the money's being well spent. I mean, I, I think that sometimes the support that, that women get at a lower level isn't there. Any more than it really is for, for, for blokes. I mean, it's a very difficult area. Unless you've got very rich parents that set you off at a very young age and move you through the, the, the series, the ladder. Um, the other thing, of course, is if you go and win the women's series, which is fine, but there's, 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 there's nowhere else to go from that point onward. You'll be the best of that particular group of women at that particular time because unless you've got some guarantees into Moto3, Moto2 or whatever it might be as part of the package, there's nowhere to go. And I think that I understand what they're trying to do, but I think a spread of cash. I mean, there should be maybe a, a, a guaranteed place in rookies. There maybe should be a guaranteed place in in the the Asia Talent Cup, the the you know Europe Talent Cup, whatever it is, and female opportunities in these things. Now, you know, is that a positive discrimination situation or or or, or what? I don't know how that will play out politically, but I still don't believe that making. Just this one series with that massive disparity, like you say, if we get Anna Carrasco dropped back in there, she's just going to absolutely thrash the rest of them because she is honed. You know, it'd be like coming back from a Grand Prix to club racing in some respects. Um, 
there isn't the base, there isn't the pool yet. And that needs funding by Dorna. That needs working through, you know, working through academies like VR46 and so on and so forth. The more females that are funded to be in some of these academy situations, you know, it needs to be a more grassroots thing to bring that, to make that pool much bigger. We will find that, you know, in 20 years time, female world champions, there's no doubt in my mind about that in, in motorcycle sport, because, you know, it's only the fact that there's not enough women in it that we don't already see some superstars in there other than the, the few aforementioned girls. I think I think it's the fact as well, you know, you mentioned Anna Carrasco, we've had a woman win a world championship level in recent times as well. It's not like this has been a, a, a derelict area for years and we have to do something to try and try and find it. It's 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 proven that it is you know, motorsport is a, a mixed gender racing series and that and that can be done. The real pr- problem, I think, is that they've labelled it this final destination. And and at the end of the day, I come back to the W Series comparison and the money situation. There was loads of money going into W Series across the grid. You know, it was great for the races because they were earning money. And uh, Amy mentioned, you know, the Alice Powells and, and uh, the Emma Kimmelinans, you know, who perhaps were, were running out of options in their career. They were then suddenly able to reignite it and make a chunk load of money. But ultimately, that, I think, is one of the reasons that led to the downfall of W Series. But the other thing as well, now that, um, I mean, I'm biased because I do F1 Academy, which is this the new um, all-women series, but that's sub- partly subsidized by Formula One itself, it's the track time they get is is unrivaled. As well as having practice qualifying three races, they have independent test days straight after the races, sometimes one or two full days of testing with top junior category teams from from formula two and formula three if that is what this new championship was going to do then i think everyone will be all for it but it sounds like you know yeah amy we still got not a lot of uh facts about it but i imagine one of the key limits of having young women come up through the ranks in motorcycle racing keith mentioned the money side but it is track time and testing as well no yeah i i i think i mean there's so many limits isn't there like that's got to be a huge one um and having that regular like we just said earlier like regular racing experience as you said like test regular testing regular track days um i think the other thing that we didn't mention about w series is that not only did they go there and win prize money but it was actually completely everything was they didn't have to pay for anything they didn't have to pay for flights didn't have to pay for accommodation they didn't have to pay for their seats um so it it really was a huge massive opportunity given you had to obviously show your talent because they had those big massive um talent searches and things like that uh whether the field were chosen it'd be interesting to understand how they're going to choose the riders for this women's chat um championship because who who will be like will it be a governing body you know or somebody put into a position like a, I'm just plucking this out of my, my head, but like an Alberto Pooch who goes in and say, right, they're talented enough, they're in, they're in. Or is it going to be a case of the teams choose their own riders? Because then again, that limits options of young hopefuls coming through because you then instantly know that teams will go for the riders which are already associated with big sponsors, they're going to get the most amount of traction. So unless it's essentially decided by somebody who who says, okay, right, 
we need to put one team as a talent team so to bring future talent up and then we can have the big names in that are going to bring people in to watch um i think that's definitely going to be quite a deciding factor on on how it all works we've kind of seen it before amy haven't we with british talent cup over here in the uk uh, british talent cup there shuhai nakamoto who was head of hrc for a long time you know I remember seeing shuhai wandering around the paddock and you know the big boss from from honda he was part of it but I remember going to Silverstone when they were doing the tests to see who was going to be in the British Talent Cup. They ran out of talent. There wasn't enough youngsters in this country to su- sustain the British Talent Cup back in the day when it, when Dorna and BT Sport were supposed to be coming together with it and in the end, BT Sport decided they weren't going to fund it. Um, and Dorna ended up having to fund it themselves. Um, Anna Carrasco. Anna Carrasco's dad is a mechanic. Anna Carrasco's mum works for the for the health service. She's a nurse, I think she is. She's come up, they've got no money. There's, we're not talking about a wealthy family here that have funded. Anna Carrasco has had to work to get to where she is like a bloke. Like I remember club racing when I started racing all those years ago. You're scratted around in your normal job, just about enough money to put tyres on a bike. Your mum and dad might have helped out a bit here and there. Um, da, 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 da. She's come up the absolute standard, normal, hard way to become a world champion. That kind of commitment Oh, I'm going to get slated for this. You just do not see that kind of grit and determination nowadays in youngsters. I'm talking about that is gender free um, in any of it. It's like it's being driven by something else, um, not just the grit and determination that the like of Anna Carrasco had to put herself in that position. So I think that the the, the determination to to achieve that's why I think the funding should should be spread out in a in a in a broader way. I think that there should be, you know, FHO Fay Ho is doing a great job here in the UK, um, promoting places for women. She's spending her money, giving the opportunity for girls to be involved in a professional outfit around the likes of Hickman and Co, who are pro racers. I think that that's the other thing is is seeing firsthand what it takes to achieve that. In isolation, I think that you you know you've you've got a bubble almost that that is not going to help you as much as being in the thick of it with the likes of a team like FHO, perhaps as an example. Oh, sorry, Pete. I thought you were about to say something there. Your mouth oh. moved. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it was his brain. It was his brain. Was he, uh, breathing. No, I, I I mean I think it does come. Uh, you know, the, I think when we went to this announcement. The, we expected it to be a ladder system, like a rookie's cup, like a something else. And we could all see how that would be useful. And so that was the big surprise. And it was really emphasized that, no, this is a destination thing. This is this is not a route to another championship. This is it. And that's the bit that I think we're all sort of waiting to see how that's going to work. Really. Let, let me ask Amy something directly. This is really touching a nerve, Amy, and I'm sorry to go there unannounced. Um, we hear still that there is a... a you know, an amount of misogyny and an amount of glass ceiling is a whatever analogy or whatever comment you want to make on it. There is still that feeling around the paddock that the women are not able to make it to elevated positions, perhaps in in a in a MotoGP paddock. Can I ask? Have, have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that there's a 
it's more difficult as a woman to achieve what you would want to achieve as a career woman in in, in a MotoGP paddock? Um, Keith, I think in my early career, I would have said no and wouldn't have felt that disparity. You know, I, I remember an, uh, a colleague of mine once saying to me when I was, it was my first year, and uh, <laughs> he uh, was an ex-colleague. He said, um, you know, I'm here to do like the more serious technical pieces and, and you're here for the fluffier, fluffier features. And I just remember thinking, you absolute dick. <laughs> I'll, 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 show you. You. I'll show you. I'll show you. But like, I mean, I knew... Uh, we we like you know went on to have a really good relationship and and things like that and so I, I definitely but at the time it definitely left left like a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and I was thinking fluffy these there's nothing fluffy about me in hindsight I was a little bit more like candy flocks back back in the day so I can kind of like semi understand but like not really um, but then not you know. I wouldn't have had, other than that example, I wouldn't have really, really strong examples to give. Perhaps, you know, towards the back end of my career and more, more recently, um, you know, people are perhaps aware of the reasons why I, I, and I'm not going to be at the races this year. I'm hoping to maybe do a couple is because I had a baby in 2021 and it just didn't seem to be that flexibility there for me to... I only do a kind of half or part season like there had been in my first year back. So from that aspect, whilst it's not strictly kind of categorized as misogyny, it, it wasn't easy for me as a female who at some point in her life is going to have a baby to return to work. So in that aspect, then yeah, there are still limitations and barriers because I do feel like we should be championing as a sport women in all areas of their lives, whether it's right at the start of the ladder, whilst also, you know, why do we only have one woman in per TV team or two, one or two? Like, shouldn't it be a 50-50 split? Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely still elements that can be improved. There are elements that are improving. I've always made it really kind of open that to me, it's not so much about there's not enough women working in the paddock. There's loads of women working in the paddock. I think what the difference is, there's not the split of women working in all the various roles. That's where you see a difference in gender. You know, we do need more women in management roles. There do need to be more women in technical roles. But then that, again, goes back to grassroots. And as a championship and as a series, they should be promoting young girls like we see with, you know, um, I've, it, it was called Dare to be Different. Harry, help me out. It's not. Yeah, yeah. Different. That was Susie Wolves. Oh, g Girls on Track, well, FIA, Girls on yeah. Track. Yeah. Um, you know, we should be promoting similarly in, in motorcycle sports girls taking part in more STEM subjects so they can go on and, and study engineering and things like that um so that's where I would stand on gender inequality in the paddock if that helps 
tricky subject. Very tricky subject. I wonder where you were going with that, um, because obviously I was aware that you'd had a had a baby. But I can also say that even from a, a father point of view, I mean, two of my children have been born while I've been at racetracks um, on the other side of the world, and the amount of consideration given towards me as a father trying to get back um, from those racetracks has been appalling, absolutely appalling. I remember one particular broadcast company trying to save a few quid by sending me via China when they knew that my wife had just given birth the day before um, and we were coming back from Sepang and they'd completely mucked up the flights. So they were trying to send us the cheap route instead of a direct route home, even though knowing that I'd got a banking new baby. I'm not trying to claim anything here at all because obviously we have the easy part of it. We do not give birth, Amy. So um, <laughs> forgive me. To try. I'm not trying to line myself up with, with your particular situation, but it, it is amazing how there is a lack of consideration to the family side of things. And what I'm getting at, with 42 Grand Prix now in total and the amount of workload that there is, will that, you know, it's all very well being a career woman. If you're, if, you're, if you're not looking to have a family at some stage, it might only benefit the very young. Um, but if you're somebody in your, in your 30s and you get into a situation where you would like to have children, you know, suddenly it's a, it's a bar in the career, isn't it? If there's not a, a, a proper process in place for looking after that side of family life within our our sport yeah I, well i think you you both say it really well there um there's a few comments that we've had come in as well just on on the fim women's championship ed asking the question that we asked you know what's the reason as women and men can compete together already can't they uh but there's still a lot of of, of positivity for it brendan saying great idea um sure they'll love it and perform well tucker thinks it's brilliant bex women's world championship absolutely yes please chris says it's a good idea so there's clearly some good support for it which is great to see so hopefully you know we get more information as this year goes by it's supposed to start next year in 2024 so uh we'll see exactly how how it uh, unfolds taking place over six rounds in Europe as part of the World Superbike Support Bill. So uh, I'm sure we'll be discussing more about this uh, as it unfolds. Amy, thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us. We absolutely want to get you back on the show as well. And uh, uh, after one of the races, we'll get you back on more regularly if you're up for it. I won't succumb you to, to Keith all the time if you're not ready for that. I know it's a lot of it's a hard work doing that. I love Amy. <laughs> <laughs> but Amy, thank you so much. And, and uh, what, what are your socials? So I know you're on TikTok and all this kind of stuff, so people can give you a follow. Put me on the spot. Um, I think mostly it's Amy Reynolds TV. Cool. Search, yeah, we'll search that and you'll find it. Brilliant. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for for taking the time. Really appreciate it. And well, that Scott was. Uh, and hello to Scott. Thank you for waiting, Scott. This is it's going swimmingly well so far. For those uh, who have um, experienced our interviews before on the podcast, we use a program called Riverside. It's a very good program, but sometimes it can play havoc when we have guests and multiple guests. But so far, everyone touch wood, cross your fingers. You, you, uh, it's going well. You better clarify and, that's down the bandwidth and our own um, Wi-Fi. Supply. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not us being terrible interviewers, but uh, well, Scott might be uh, regretting this. Although we have uh, we have had him on before when we did our live show uh, from uh, from Silverstone. But Scott is here, ready and waiting. Thank you so much uh, for that, Scott. Welcome. Um, we're, before we dive into to Moto E and and uh, and thing and all things technical, um, how are you doing? Where are you in the world at the moment? Yeah, pretty good at the moment. I'm actually in the UK for once because I travel quite a lot between the different events that I, I help work at. Um, so it's kind of weird being in the UK, but also quite nice sometimes. It's like Keith said, with 21 GPs for those guys and 12 World Superbikes, but plus British Superbikes, Moto America and everything else. 
sometimes you feel like you're away from home just a little bit too much. So at the moment, I've got obviously as Keith knows knows me since since I popped out pretty much. Um, the uh, had a few family uh, difficulties over the last couple of years, so there's been quite a lot of family management stuff going on. Uh, but also here working on a bunch of projects for the future. Well, it's great to have you join us. So thank you very much. We want to talk Moto E uh, to start off with because uh, Moto E is still one of our most listened to podcasts. We did a whole thing about it last year. Keith's not openly not a fan, and to be honest, the, you know a, a lot a lot of the comments that we've had in about Moto E, you know, not a lot. Of, it seems like not a lot of people watch it, but we thought it was a good time to talk about it because they kicked off in Le Mans. It's the fifth season of Moto E. It's now officially a world championship. Ducati the sole manufacturer now first year for them i mean scott okay, you're winning everything yeah well, <laughs> i mean but, but i'm sure keith is desperate to come in here but before he does i just you know what are your what are your thoughts on motor e? how do you view it within the the landscape of motorcycle racing at the moment i enjoy the technology so the, the tech that's involved in them is quite interesting obviously the bikes are not an open price uh, development they're they're built to a cost so a lot of parts on them are road production parts which also shows you how interesting that is but the flip side it's interesting to see for example triumph building an electric bike that's not for the street so it's um it's an interesting sort of set of developments where battery power just isn't enough for high high distance high range so it's still not particularly applicable to um to the road just yet in the form of a motorcycle on the other hand i always say rental cars they're electric because you can arrive in the paddock and charge them with somebody else's electric normally but um it's uh there's some more time to go before we're anywhere close to that do you want me to join in (laughs) <laughs> I, you look, you, I thought you were chomping at the bit, Keith. Well, it's not that. I mean, I, I think the the concept of of, of electric as a, as a vehicle is is fine. I mean, it, it, pollution within towns, cities, and so on and so forth has to be dealt with. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, my 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 slight problem with it, Scotty, and you being a, a technical man will know much better than me. My rather basic Essex kind of way of thinking is is that we don't have really the instigation to 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 death of these these motor vehicles of any kind whether it be a car or a bike in that that you know you've got to dig the stuff out of a hole some you know fantastic mineral somewhere you've got to dump it at the end of it i never seem to think that there's enough consideration given to the the lifespan of uh, and the true cost environmentally and physically and financially as as would be i think it seems like everyone's focused on just that bit in the middle you know the, the fact the electric bike the electric car which is a as an idea a concept and as an environmental situation seems to be quite good but when you go for the wider stuff you know where, where does all this material come from where does all this material get dumped how much of this material is being shipped around the world to manufacturing plants to make it it seems to me that there's a bloody great big black hole in in accountability there somewhere there's a lot of investigation going in on the end-to-end costs of electric because that's a very valid comparison obviously for the motor industry as a whole not just for the bike racing industry but really the racing industry kind of sits alone on its own little island doesn't it because at the end of the day we do still have quite a big impact which we're trying to offset um, working really hard in the background to figure out how how to make things just that little bit greener uh, the whole way through from tires to fuel to how we tra- transport our stuff around so we are looking at that the yeah, the true cost, the true impact. You see various reports that 
to produce a Tesla battery, the amount of energy and the amount of stuff you have to dig up has the same kind of net emissions as 50 or 60,000 miles in a car. So, but there's no really, really kind of validated uh, tests and report on that. So it's very difficult, but we're very quickly moving towards a world where we're going to have synthetic fuels and synthetic fuels, nothing new. Um, they were being made in Germany in the 40s and 50s because they needed much higher quality fuel than was available at the time. Um, and the reality is you pump a load of energy to into the system to create uh, synthetic fuels. So if you're going to create those synthetic fuels, you have to do it in a place where you've got good renewable energy, be it wind, be it sun. But we've got this amazing distribution system around the whole world for storing energy and, and moving it around in fuel. At the moment, we, we call it petrol or gasoline. But when we've got a synthetic fuel, it will work in our internal combustion engines. There's There are some issues, though. So at the moment, some of the... Um, some of the laws that are being created are saying zero tailpipe emissions. Well, if you're running on synthetic fuels, there are some tailpipe emissions because there are little bits of oil that get burnt. There are little bits of metal that get burnt and do come out of the exhaust pipe. But it's a fraction. It's, it's millions of what we have currently. So actually, they're pretty. They're very, very green fuels. Uh, also, the improvements in re, re, um, how we can recycle engines and, and the Euro 6s and onwards, so vehicles, mean that pretty much most of the engines will be able to be recycled later on. Whereas at the moment, you open your, your bonnet and you'll see loads of plastics and everything else. Later on, you'll start to see magnesiums and aluminiums again because they can be recycled. So end-to-end, it's actually it's quite an interesting space to be right now to see where it's going to go. The um, But what's the net? Um, impact between batteries and fuel. From a racing point of view anyway, we kind of need to stay on something that for 15 kilos of fuel, we can do an entire 30 or 40 minutes of racing whereas right now you need hundreds of kilograms of batteries which are impractical and the the time scales to get batteries with enough energy density that aren't effectively bombed um, it's years, well it's decades actually, so we're, we're quite a long way away from having MotoGP length races with MotoGP levels of horsepower or world superbikes, but it's a, an incredible technology for shorter ranges and for cities and, and for that kind of infrastructure. So it's a almost parallel development and if you actually start googling synthetic fuels you'll see it's quite interesting the companies that tend to own the refineries that are being built, so I think Chile's got one of the biggest ones at the moment and as far as I know it's owned by Porsche. Oh, <laughs> because uh, they need something to put in their noisy, exciting internal combustion engine vehicles. So people are playing it from both sides at the moment. So some people are claiming an all-electric future, but mm, they're keeping their options open in the background. So it, and, and and from our point of view, we we are in a business that we call it sport. But when you go to Japan and you get your visa, it says entertainer's visa on it. So we are in the sport of entertainment. Um, for uh, the business of entertainment so we do have to remember that it's a show and there's a lot of talk about noise and noise pollution as well and when you stand at the edge of a track the noise that echoes through you it gives you well it, it's um it's very emotional and so you can see stuff and you can feel stuff and touch stuff but the one thing that will make you cry sat in your chair it tends to be music and noise and it's also the first um, sense that we have because when you're still in the womb, you can hear before you can do anything else. So we have to remember that in the entertainment industry, we do need noise. And for all the people that sit there telling you, oh, you have to understand that the, the, the youth of today, they're quite happy with uh, headphones and everything else. I've been to EDM concerts in the last few years. I was a little bit older than most of the rest of the people. And I can tell you, it was not quiet. <laughs> <laughs> 
or me. <laughs> well, that I mean, a lot, a lot of the comments that we had come in are, you know, I'm not interested one bit. The, I, I, I like the sound and the smell of of motorcycle racing. Uh, not interested in Moto E. It's a gimmick. Not interested at all. It would be okay if they added soundy at the sound effect of engines. Maybe, maybe we're really not doing Dorna a, a, a much of a service here because I think Dorna basically they've seen the example of Bernie Eccleston where he didn't go with the electric stuff, and um, Dorna have headed off that development avenue, if you like, from a from a uh, a, a separate promotion, perhaps, as we found, found with Formula One, where it went to uh, Formula E, um, whereas they bought, they've kept Moto E and the, and the copyright, if you like, under the wing mm. of Dorna and kept it uh, within their group rather than letting someone else spin off with it in some other direction. And, and we have a much smaller industry. The motorcycle industry is much smaller than the car industry. So we either get knocked down stuff from the car developments, but it's actually better that the development that gets done on Moto E is learned across our entire industry. So I think it's actually kind of good to keep it in-house because we're, we're not big enough to stand alone with multiple different championships. And it's not so, green. So it sounds like- it's not green at all. I mean, when you see the, the bloody great generators they have to have on site just to charge the bikes up, it's just a joke to be absolutely But it helps develop machinery for the end user that is greener for a small, like a, for a cityscape. So uh, it, it does work in, in the bigger picture. It is useful in the in our our little bubble, and we are in a little bubble. Um, then yes, it's it's not particularly green on that level, but what is helping to produce and promote is greener. So there is a trickle down effect though to the end user, the road user, because it's not exactly like you're seeing electric bikes left right and center on the road is it whereas you know i suppose formula e could say that well yeah there are more and more electric cars on the road we are literally developing efficiency for the road car there are a lot more electric scooters though so but not okay. just not from scooter size but as in the scooters that we see that are unlicensed and kids are on but through yeah. to to like moped size like the equivalent of okay. 50 cc two stroke one two five four stroke there are now a lot of those yeah, so they, actually they pile them up in northampton and set fire to them <laughs> or throw them in the river. <laughs> However, or, you watch Moto E, you kind of think, hmm, I wonder what they're like to ride. I should have a go on one at some point. Kind I, re- of thing. I remember Colin so, Edwards when he first rode one of the uh, Energica uh, bikes when they first came out. He rode it around Circuit of the Americas and it was hilarious listening to his onboard. We couldn't put half of it out because he couldn't turn <laughs> it. He couldn't stop it. <laughs> it went quite good in a straight line, actually. They pick up really, really well. But they're so unbelievably heavy. I remember Olin's put, they, they sold them because I don't think they serviced the bikes at all, Olin's. They provided the suspension at one point. And they had to have the biggest spring they had in stock to just cope with the weight of the things because they were so heavy. I, th- I think the Ducatis are quite a lot uh, uh, nicer from that perspective, but they're very, very. The problem is, isn't it, Scott, that they just don't last long enough for racing. You know, six or seven laps is not enough, in my view. No, exactly. Although. I'm not entirely sure right now. A lot of people want to watch 45 minutes of them. So actually, maybe six or seven laps is just enough for racing right now. Uh, uh, I'm speaking from myself here. Do not represent anybody else. No, representing me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Richard says, Moto E is some great racing. I really enjoy watching it this season. They'd really benefit from an extra practice session because the Ducati bike is brand new. But I'm really looking forward to how they all uh, get on with the new bike over the course of the season. The lap times, as we saw in Le Mans, have already dropped massively. So they 
they are they are much pacier and quicker around the track. They're going to be going to Silverstone as well this year for the first time, longest track on the calendar for them. But of course, with the length of Silverstone means much much less laps that they'll be able to do. So there's that issue then that that comes from it. Uh, Scott, I mean, you mentioned we talk about synthetic fuels, and I, I want to talk about hydrogen as well because shane has asked a great question and perhaps you might have already headed it off but i'm gonna ask it anyway with the recent announcement by the japanese manufacturers teaming up for hydrogen power would this not make moto e a little bit nervous if the big makers of motorcycles aren't going down the all-electric route surely that puts moto e in a little bit of jeopardy it certainly does but like I said, these decisions were made five or six years ago. Well, actually, in the case of Moto E, like seven or eight years ago. And we aren't clear of the picture going forward right now, here in 2023. So imagine how it was eight years ago. So we're talking 2015 at that point, where, wow, is it going to go electric? What's going to happen to the future? There were, really weren't much in the way of talks about hydrogen or synthetic fuels at that point. Synthetic fuels, as I said, is nothing magic and new, but we didn't know the direction so it's it was important that you investigate all opportunities and it's produced us five or six years of amazing racing is going to continue to do so so yeah it's it's not dead yet so what the future holds we don't know and that applies massively in superbikes as well right now so we have a lot of thousand cc sports bikes producing over 200 horsepower but these are kind of end of line for a lot of the manufacturers at the moment there'll be small tweaks and updates um, but because the manufacturers also don't know what's going to happen in the future and also don't know how big the marketplace is for 200 plus horsepower bikes, the production rate and the development rates massively slowed down. So we are in a pretty pivotal point in, in motorsport right now, but it's particularly bikes as to what the future holds. Do you think that's why Suzuki jumped? Suzuki have their own issues. I think it's it's well publicised. They had uh, certain issues, in, uh, particularly financially in other areas, and consolidating into their car market because it's still quite a small company, and they produce an insanely huge number of small cars in certain markets that we just simply don't see. So the the, the big picture of Suzuki is a little bit different to to what we see. And again, we're in a bubble. Motorsport and bikes in general are actually quite tiny in the grand scheme of things. Um, and it's such a shame because with such a small race department and a very small group of engineers, they did something. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Incredible. So it's it's a shame and their superbike as well. Uh, the last released bike I think was 2015. Uh, really, really good. It went to Motor America, won the championship there. It's won World Endurance Championships, but then ceased development. So they didn't put invest any more money in that bike. And particularly at that point, the sales figures for the Lita Sports bikes was pretty small, so they couldn't justify the return on that investment. So um, yeah, it's a shame that we've lost Suzuki. Uh, but somewhere, hopefully, they're keeping uh, keeping the staff on that have all that knowledge embedded. I suppose the the point of my question, really underlyingly, was the fact that. Maybe they're looking at developing electric or something else, and so they've pulled all their resources back in to move forward in future. Will we see, do you think, more of that from other factories? I'm thinking Yamaha at the moment who are struggling a bit in MotoGP perhaps. Um, yes, and if you look at what they do in Asia, for example, the range of bikes that we see in Europe is not the range of bikes they have produced. The, the, there are some manufacturers producing multiple millions of units per year, and the majority of them are smaller. So they're looking at different marketplaces because when you produce some of the, the bigger Chinese and Indian manufacturers are producing five and six million machines a year, which is, the scale of those companies is so vast in comparison to the scale of the effectively boutiques that we're looking at. So we look at the, the smaller uh, MVs and people like that as the motors, as small boutique manufacturers. But actually the Kawasaki's are almost a boutique manufacturing comparison to some of the bigger Indian and, and Chinese manufacturers. So it's um it's small and it's very hard to to invest the amount of money you need to develop batteries etc. So I don't think any of the motorcycle manufacturers, possibly with the exception of somebody like Honda, uh, would be big enough to be developing some of that stuff directly themselves. Mm-hmm. A lot of that's being developed by kind of the OEM manufacturers. So in the background, people like Bosch are working with battery suppliers and and inverter suppliers. So people will be becoming assemblers of other parts, but they still need to produce and understand it. Let me ask you one more question, if I may, boys, if I can just get in there with this one. Europe's leapfrogged the Japanese in MotoGP and Grand Prix terms at the moment. Um, Japanese are probably going to be fighting back at some stage in the future. Do, will we see this technology? Maybe maybe Europe is going down, although we're, we're doing absolutely fantastic at the minute in MotoGP level and we're leading the world as it is at the moment. Are we going to see the Japanese leapfrog us, Europe, collectively, um, in the future because they're they're loading their gun for the future perhaps at this moment in time possibly but again like i said i don't think that we know the direction i think the japanese a few years ago decided the direction was going to be electric now obviously there's a resurgence of the future potentially being depending on legislation uh whether it could potentially be synthetic fuel based so therefore we maintain in the higher performance bikes um uh, a liquid fuel still so nobody quite knows the the direction and when it comes to electric, a lot of it's going to be off-the-shelf components. You'll go and buy powertrain components and batteries 
from existing suppliers that have already invested the, the money in it. If I could just jump in there, I'd like to ask Scott, really, a near future, let's say, obviously the MotoGP rules for what, 2027 and beyond, you spoke about the synthetic fuels. There's a lot of talk about how to maybe take a bit of performance off the bikes. What's the best way to do that whilst keeping the show and everything else? What would what would be your ideas for the, the areas on that? <laughs> so, so for me, some of it's fuel-based as well. Um, it's very, very difficult. Once the cat's out of the bag, it's very hard to put it back in, isn't it? Obviously, most of GP tried that by going to 800cc machines, but the cost was quite incredible. Um, and it produced with, with it another set of problems. But there are a few very quick, bold strokes you can make to make things slower. And generally, that's to reduce massively the tire performance. So, But that's an issue that we have. And this is very much coming from me, not from Dorna or for MFIM or anybody else. The tire performance needs to be redefined. Because right now, tire performance means what to you guys? Grip. Oh. More of it. Exactly. <laughs> so for me, tire performance could also be how long it lasts while giving a certain amount of grip. If you could triple the life of a tire whilst giving 90% of its grip, I would say that's actually improved its performance. So, But we just need a bit of a mental shift because bike racing is still absolutely stuck in going faster, faster, faster. And that is what motorsport is about. But I think when Harry and Keith were at Silverstone, uh, Tommy Hill had said a few things and I kind of poo-pooed it a little bit because the reality is we all worry about super stock bikes being as fast as super bikes. Nobody stands at the side of the track and goes, oh, well, golly, that superstop bike was 0.3 a second a lap slower. Uh, that's too close. You don't. You go, wow, did you see whoever take out whoever? Um, I'm not going to put any names in. There are plenty of targets from VSV last weekend, Mr. Irving. <laughs> Um, (laughs) but the reality is we're interested in really exciting racing and normally close racing we're not interested you don't see two seconds a lap when you watch it on television so we can massively reduce the mid-corner speed some of the most fantastic races from the 90s you watch the 500s those things had like 160 horsepower and no grip that's why they were quite exciting but the racing was phenomenal and that's what we want we don't necessarily need to find that last second of that. So we could uh, redefine our performance goals, massively reduce consumption in tyres, for example, and say only have a few sets a weekend, but they've got to have incredible tyre life. And the net effect immediately is that there's going to be less available grip. But it will slowly come back, but you get yourself three or four, five, seven years before you need to slow it down again. So there there are a few ways. Um, and also, from my point of view, uh, managing the quantity of fuel flow, the quality of fuel. And then if we reduce certain components' uh, quality, it gives the engineers a challenge. And in top-level motorbike racing, be it MotoGP or World Superbikes, a lot of the funding comes from the R&D side of the company. So they need to be able to justify why they're sending engineers around the world, um, not just to get suntans, but to actually provide information that's useful for that gets passed back into the company and then gets ultimately rolled into the street bikes so it's um so there are a couple of ways of slowing it down but the politics at the moment are quite difficult and and making moves particularly quickly is getting harder than ever and no one no one likes change excuse me Bless this you. is probably <laughs> yeah uh scott as a tech guy i'm sure you love the gizmos on the bike like the ride height devices the whole shot devices but you know, where do you draw the line on that? You mentioned the R&D side. Obviously, how influenced should MotoGP 
be by production bikes, should we say? Obviously, there's carbon brakes, there's seamless gearboxes. I mean, what do you keep and what do you not? You know, where, where do you think the line should be drawn on allowing new technology? And where should you say, look, guys, if you can't put it on a road bike, there's no point pursuing it. Well, we still have two championships, obviously, in bike racing. So we've got Superbike, which is very much reflects what the street bike and the production bike is, um, obviously, with some difficulties in managing that. And MotoGP has always been the open technology side. Now, you can see it in a couple of ways. I think it's really interesting to develop the new tech, but then once it becomes ubiquitous and then doesn't add anything to the racing, then they've got learnt, learnt it. The knowledge has gone back into the company, which is the net goal. And then potentially you say, okay, don't need it in racing anymore, move on to the next thing. And there will be the next thing and the next thing. All the stuff that we don't think of that Gigi kind of imagines at 4 a.m. in the morning. So, because it tends to be him. The, the, um, and that's the reality of it. The, the ride height devices, the, the start launch, launch devices, they figure those out. They understand how they work, whether they've got an application on the road or not. Actually, potentially, there is there are some some not quite realized side effects. Simply changing the height of a bike without it affecting other things can actually make a bike much more accessible, like a big trail bike, much more accessible to a small person when they're riding in town, for example. So there are some knock-on effects that you don't think about. So they've got that knowledge. Um, and then when your big trail bike is back out being a trail bike, you can then flick your switches or do your knobs, and then the bike can be back to a normal ride height and you can't touch the ground anymore. But there are actually some interesting applications of this stuff, but maybe it's time has has been done in MotoGP. Because um, once everybody has it, and once everybody's getting the same benefit of it, then actually it can go at that point because everybody has the same same thing removed. So it's a um, very, very fine line to tread. So, and if it's not giving anything to the entertainment of our sport, but still costing a lot of money, then it's not necessarily got a particularly useful platforms. Sorry, just banging my, banging my, banging my microphone. <laughs> I thought you'd fell asleep then, Harry. No, sorry. If you're sorry about that, for anyone who's listening with headphones, you would have got a massive, massive ban there. I'll tell Adrian to edit that out. Uh, sorry, Peter, carry on with your excellent questioning. Uh, or you, well, you had a question. Well, no. I mean, I mean, the obviously the other side of things is, is that the, the, the quicker we get, obviously in MotoGP terms, uh, the 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 worse it gets for for traditional tracks that are becoming slightly unsafe because of it, because of the momentum and the velocity that most of these bikes now are carrying into and out of corners. Um, so it'll have a double effect to bringing down. I, I like. I mean, we've discussed the the kind of bowling ball tire scenario um, before here on the podcast for the for the same reason. But it's a question of. I I often think that Gigi, when he wakes up at four o'clock in the morning, comes up with a whole load of ideas. I wonder if Danny Aldridge wakes up at sort of one minute past four, trying to work out a counter um, to uh, to Gigi's ideas. It seems like it's so unfair that you've got all these really brilliant brains trying to work out how to circumnavigate the rule book and uh, you, you've got the overall group the MF, whatever it is the manufacturers association trying to uh, preempt whatever Gigi's coming up with and then danny aldridge has got to sort of lay down the law and try and um, make them stick to that particular rule that they've all agreed on it seems like a nightmare scenario to me i think that's the game <laughs> it's a nightmare scenario for one is like a fun challenge for another isn't it so yeah it is but that's the, the whole goal is to keep everybody kind of on the same same page so and it's it's interesting to see as tech develops how the rule book becomes out of date annually mm -hmm. so it's a it's a yeah. big task 
just if I could just switch championships slightly, Scott. Obviously, World Superbike. I think you were involved in the, in uh, you know the balancing algorithm. I think that's what they call it, isn't it? I, I, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of things. There. I just wondered, maybe I think the algorithm itself is a bit of a secret because otherwise the manufacturers would game the system a bit, perhaps. But you know, I mean, how did you come up with that? Trying to balance. We're talking about rules and things. You're trying to balance and keep lots of manufacturers involved in the sport and and all those kind of things. You know, how did you even come up with that sort of algorithm? 3.25 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Was it a dream or a nightmare? I started off as a dream, became a nightmare. It's, um, I'm not directly involved with it now, obviously. I'm, I'm now working on the Dawner side with the technology. But um, from the point of view of the algorithm, there, there are multiple levels in Superbike. So basically, you've got the concessions, and now super concessions, which allow the big steps to get a not particularly competitive street bike into fit and fighting ready um, state so that it can be competitive and then the algorithm is actually just like i say the cream on the top it's a very small adjustment at the top with a couple of hundred rp or 250 rpm uh, steps to effectively fine-tune so because if a, if a manufacturer makes a step from a concession part and overshoots then you want it to be able to say tickle just just gently bring the performance back in but it's very very hard and the original algorithm uh, includes a lot of input including rider data it's a Kalman algorithm that has um, lots and lots of data sources from speed and acceleration and lap times and the number of riders and the number of laps and the how much you can kind of um, presume that the lap is a proper full-on lap so it's it's a massive mix and it becomes this like sort of effectively a small black box on a computer that, that outputs um, some data and it's almost a statistic that you get out so it's a, a performance related statistic that, that pops out the other end and you can just effectively see the relative performance of the machinery but it's incredibly hard to get something like that um finely tuned i think the, that black box is going to be smoldering a bit when top rag gets on a bmw yeah, it's gonna gonna change things a little bit, isn't it? So it'll be interesting to see what he can do because he definitely gets hold of a motorbike, and that's what the BMW needs. So the then we've now created the um, the, the regular concession points, which basically totted up against podium performances before. Now extend to a little bit further down, so the top five and concession points, and then do you basically average the race performance against and compare each brand against the average podium performance. Uh, to start to get to concession points. So it's a way of bringing the bikes in. So effectively, the World Superbike engine development got capped a couple of years ago. So unless you earn a concession, you can't improve the performance of your bike. But some of the bikes are already at the limit of what the engine can achieve. There's no great 10 or 15 horsepower step because they are limited by the production bike. And like we said before, there aren't going to be lots of new evolutions of production bike. I think the Honda basically said if they hadn't built the new CBR 1000 when they did, they probably wouldn't have been justifiable going forward. So they did it. They made tiny updates to it, but that's ultimately there at the moment. And it's like taking away the synthetic fuels and what happens in the future. At the moment, they see that being probably their last engine platform and basic platform going forward. Um, there'll be updates from some of the other manufacturers, which will be much more about bodywork than it will be about anything else underneath the bodywork. And we already saw that in the super sport, old super sport category with the 600s. The, the, the Yamaha is basically 2012. The Kawasaki was basically 2009. Uh, the, the, just, they couldn't justify investing tens of millions of euro into bikes that weren't selling enough to justify that. So, and that's where we're at with the thousands. And that means that the regulation needs to help the teams or the manufacturers a little bit slower. 
And ultimately, the bikes are now so finely tuned and so well set up with so much technology behind them that you see, well, it's getting a finer line. The rider can't make the difference anymore. So it's, uh, it's got much more difficult. Well, Pete, go on. I'm I just conscious we're running out of time slightly. So Yeah, well, just on that, because obviously the, the one thing the fans always ask us is Bautista's top speed. I mean, well, what do you make of that, that, Scott? Is it, is it, you know, is it, some people say it's wrong to punish one rider. Other people say, well, look, he's so much quicker than the others. It must be something that's wrong. I mean, it's obviously a difficult one. You've got Petrucci and guys like that who who've just lost some, some revs, I think, haven't they? Going, well, hang on a minute. We, we were struggling as it was. Well, well obviously, there's, there's certain manufacturers didn't want a combined weight, so it was blocked. Now, the you can position the combined weight before we start. Bautista, phenomenal rider. There are two or three other riders on the grid, arguably as good, if not better, on their day. So we have at least three guys that are all incredible. And when you stand at the side of the racetrack or watch them in detail, phenomenal. They're actually on the limit the whole time. So you get one group saying, well, it's not fair to penalise somebody for their body. That guy's lighter, so why should you handicap that guy? So, but if you take it away from, take the word lighter out of it and say, oh, it's not fair to handicap somebody because of their physique and the way they were born, et cetera, et cetera. You can also go, yeah, you're absolutely right. So it's absolutely not fair to penalize the heavier riders who were born with a bigger bulk. So it is unfair on them. So they shouldn't be penalized by being heavier. So you can, you can position it however, whichever way around you like. MotoGP World Superbike, basically the only two series now in professional motorsport, including four wheels, that don't have combined weight. Do you want to see, and, and I've asked this to a lot of people, and a few people have gone, no, 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 it's, uh, it's like seeing a jockey, so that it's fine that he's lighter. Do you want to see the most skilled motorcycle racers proving their skill level against one another? Or do you want to see the most skilled motorcycle racers being unable to prove their skill level because they're heavier. I, I'm I'm for a combined weight every day of the week. Exactly, and I think it's positioning. It's how you position it. And then there's a lot of talk. Well, as soon as you put weight on the bike, it disadvantages somebody massively. So the discussion is to have, say, for example, if you're 10 kilos lighter, you only get seven kilos of weight, for example, because to, to, to counter that. But the reality is, when you put the weight on the bike in near the center of gravity, the rider essentially doesn't feel it. It doesn't dynamically change the bike. Um, and people say, well, you've got longer limbs, so you can uh, mass- um, manage to get the bike moved around. Well, longer limbs aren't related to weight, they're related to height. And if you've got a longer leader, you've actually got less force. And the reality is the handlebars move around about this much around a lap. That's it. There is no long levers. It doesn't exist. It's like the steering lock on a super bike or an OGP bike is this. And how hard it is to change direction is down to the geometry of the bike. So the only one disadvantage you get when you're a little rider is you can't hang off quite so much. So you have one or two degrees higher lean angle, but you're also putting a lot less energy into the tire because you weigh so much less. So actually the net advantage is is with the lighter rider. And then you get also the argument, well, the bigger riders in the low grip conditions do better because you see Loris Batts was podium in, 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 in MotoGP's. That's fine. I've also seen Mar- Marquez and Danny Pedrosa destroy everybody in the wet in MotoGP as well. So the argument doesn't actually stand. So right now for me, it's uh, it needs a combined weight. That won't change everything because the, the most performant engine is still the Ducati. But 
it will make things a little bit closer. And that's ultimately, we, we don't want Top Rack and Johnny saying, you know, oh, we literally, it doesn't matter what our skill level is, we cannot win. And that's actually not good for the sport. Yeah, well, as a as a six foot five, a hundred kilogram person, uh, I don't think any kind of combined weight is going to help me out. Sadly, uh, there is my... a limit. There is definitely a limit. <laughs> you say, okay, once you pass weight, we can't help you anymore. I'm too far gone. If too there was far a gone. body penalty, Harry, you'd be shot. <laughs> I think I've got I've got size sixty feet. That's like fifty eight in European. So uh, even that, I don't think I'd fit on. You're anyway. fairly good barefoot in a half tube. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was oh, surprised how big he was when I met him at Silverstone because yeah. he looks so weedy on here. What? You, what weedy? Because he's got no shoulders. What? <laughs> All right, I think I think it's time we end it now. Uh, look, such a pleasure, Scott. Uh, as always, really insightful though, genuinely. Um, I think uh, we could talk, well, like with Amy, we could talk for for another hour, but then we probably have to start paying you. So, no, because um, I've got loads of opinions on the women's stuff as well, and some much more insider information. Ju- just to to go back to you saying it's the end point now. That yes. the goal of the women's world championship is that if somebody chooses it to be their destination and that's their ambition, that it is credible. Uh, so that they can continue to race there for a few more years. But it is also a stepping off or a starting point to go into the other categories. And it's really important that the bikes are not a replacement for, say, a WSS 300 with 50 horsepower. These bikes are going to be more performance so that it is actually a challenge to ride the bike and to make the races. So therefore, the, the, the competitors can prove their level and hopefully use it as a stepping stone into um, open class racing as opposed to the women's races but should they choose to stay there there's nothing that uh, it's not like staying in 125s moto 3 or well super sport 300 forever so it's uh it's to try and give it enough credibility that people can stay there without criticism okay i mean that actually sounds slightly better but i mean they didn't convey that very well Um, the difference between explaining it from somebody that speaks native spanish or italian well yes that's also yeah so it's um so no it's it's really important that the championship has credibility but also potentially isn't on the same machinery as everybody else is racing so it'll have its own own machinery so Mm. it doesn't draw the most direct of comparisons so it's uh definitely somewhere where we need need the women to to push each other until their skill level comes up and then they can jump off. And we've seen women world championships. There are some amazing women racing in America right now. So there are some super highly skilled women out there and it'd be great to get them all in one place. Also, the other thing though, this kind of championship needs good broadcasting because it needs eyes on. It it can't just be on the YouTube or whatever. It needs to be tied up with with a a mainstream broadcaster, right? That's down to you guys. <laughs> well, I mean, stuff. well, look at Basically, Moto E, yeah. you know, it's not on BT in, in the UK anymore, is it? They got rid of it. Um, That's, uh, it's very much down to the broadcaster side yeah. of that. And the and as Keith already said, 42 MotoGP races, um, 36 World Superbike races. There are a lot of races to cover. So it's very hard to get the, the moment in the limelight. However, the eyes of the paddock are also on these people. So you will see the people that made the decisions about who get the rides in the other classes will be watching. So that is also an important aspect. So having it at a world championship race is a little bit more powerful than having it. Because at the moment, there's a, an Italian championship women's race. Mm-hmm. And it's really good. It's great. It's very competitive. But they're not naturally going to get pulled out of that into a world super sport type team. Then they're going to get 
pulled into an Italian championship team. So by putting it as a display, putting them on display in front of team managers at a world championship does actually give them a much bigger opportunity, whether it's on television or not. Okay, really, that's fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you, Scott, um, for that. Really interesting. We'll let you go because we've used up far too much of your time. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast no, and taking us. We're, we're going to have to get you back on. We will, you know, it's a regret. I've got your email now, so uh, you're going to no, regret that. And, and, and Keith can always manipulate me into anything. Like I said, having <laughs> yeah. known him for over 40 years, he has plenty of dirt. But likewise, Keith. <laughs> Keith's got dirt on a lot of people. Look, Scott, thank you so much. Um, good luck for the rest of the season. I'm sure we'll catch up with you at some point soon. Uh, but thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Pleasure. See you Cheers. later. Oh. oh well that was that was really fascinating actually especially I, I feel I feel bad now we should have brought Scott in earlier with, with Amy but um it's, I mean it's one of those situations with as I said to you before we came on here with with Scotty it doesn't matter what the subject is you are going to get an in-depth conversation with mm-hmm. him about you know he's one of those guys that's very very knowledgeable smart by nature smart by nature and I, I mean I, I, I think sometimes he gets a bad rap because he's not shy when it comes to uh, letting you know that he knows. Um, and I think, you know, some people are intimidated by his intelligence. I, I think Scott's, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's bang on it generally. I don't necessarily agree with him. And he, this is cheating, really, because he ain't there to fight back. But I don't necessarily agree with him when it comes to the, the, the bigger rider, smaller rider thing. I think that sometimes there are advantages in being a, a smaller rider in some respects, if there's no weight limits, that is. Um, mm. uh, and there are advantages in being a bigger rider in the way that you can move around the bike, the way that you can push your weight back over the back wheel of the bike and so on and so forth. The thing about a, a bike in comparison with a car is it's a, it's a, a platform that you can make work for you um, depending on where you put yourself as a person. Whereas in a car, obviously racing, you, you're strapped in, you're, you're the central ballast, if you like, and you just your limbs are doing the, 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 the bits and pieces. Um, but with, with a motorbike, you can move all over it and make it work for you in a, a unique kind of way, which is why we're so praiseworthy of KTM at the moment because they've made a motorbike that works um, so well across such a range of different size and different styles of riders. Danny Pedroza at one end of the scale, Jack Miller at the other, maybe. Um, but we digress. Where do you want to go, Harry? <laughs> Where do I want to go? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Um, we brought up in that top rack, didn't we? Um, signing to uh, BMW. Uh, and that. that all but but puts pay to any kind of Yamaha MotoGP well, deal then, doesn't it? There's two or three things here, isn't there? I mean, Keenan Sofoglu is his manager. Keenan's a hard man when it comes to doing a managerial job. He was a hard man on the track, actually. Um, but um, where's Yamaha going? I think this underlines all the things we've been saying in the last few weeks regarding Yamaha. Yamaha just do not seem to be able to hang on to the people they need to hang on to or or are not showing the people that they want to hang on to where their future is in MotoGP. Now, mm. Add to that the fact that Top Rack didn't really get on that wonderfully in that test recently. Um, would have disappointed Yamaha. Would have disappointed him. Add that to the fact that there doesn't seem to be much of a future at the moment at Yamaha in MotoGP terms. Um, so therefore, he's looked for a new challenge. Now, a lot of press is saying bad move. You know, he's, he's topping his bank balance up. He's, he's going for the cash. You know, BMW are just looking for another, you know, something to bolster their their efforts. Um, but I think. Timing is everything in engineering. And I just have that feeling that BMW are just at that point now where this kind of motivation through signing another top-line rider like Top Rack is going to make the difference. You've suddenly seen, you know, Josh Brooks. Josh Brooks couldn't do anything on the PBM Ducati, um, came to FHO in the Britain, in Great Britain, and, and 
suddenly he's a he's a leading light rider again. The, the BMW is not that far away, um, and you've got to reckon we're spending the kind of cash that BMW are spending. They're surely not going to cock it up for much longer. I mean, it has been a problem in the past with the, with their way of thinking has not really brought them to the fore as quick as they should have come. But that is not a small company. That is not a, a place that's lacking in engineering skills. Um, so I just think the top rack motivates them. Um, it will be motivation for him on a brand new bike. He's sort of run out of momentum a bit with the Yamaha. Um, it's going to be really interesting. And it's going to blow the bloody Scottsmart algorithm out of the water because top rack on a BMW is going to be something a little <laughs> bit um, special, I think. Shame that, shame that MotoGP are not going to get him. And I think that's it for me. Top Rack's now going to be another Johnny Ray situation. He'll be in World Superbike for as long as he wants to be. Um, I don't think there'll be the opportunities there for him. BMW are not going to be going to MotoGP. That you can be pretty much sure of. Um, so I think that Top Rack has basically signed his future into World Superbike now. I think you're exactly right there, Keith. Is Because he could have, if he'd have gone to, say, a Ducati or a Honda, you'd say, oh, well, there's a route into MotoGP. But as you, as you say, there's no BMW interest in motion GP. So this is Top Rack really nailing his future in Superbike. Um, and, and I think for people that say, oh, it's about the money and things like that, Top Rack would have earned more in motor GP. I'm pretty confident. But for, I mean, even, for less uh, time, even... though, Pete, I think that's the, the issue here. I think he's happy in World Superbike, in that environment. He, he, he just seems to be right for that environment. I think the intensity of motor GP, politically, public relations-wise and the like, doesn't seem it seems to be in conflict with his personality and i think that that's and he could go on for almost as long as he wants to in world superbike bar an injury whereas about a gp i think your life you know suddenly you've got a yellow label stuck to your forehead haven't you you're, you're almost out of date before you know it your sell-by date comes up that's earlier. it yeah i mean the point i'm making yeah the point i'm making is he hasn't just chased the money as some people are saying it because the money would have been in motor gp yeah you know, you hear even from sort of helmet suppliers, leather suppliers, there's just more money if you ride in MotoGP, you know, whether you're even at a, even at a satellite team. So this isn't just about money, let's say. This is about Toprak doing, as you say, Keith, what he wants to do for his future, what he enjoys. And uh, definitely a big challenge, isn't it? There's been a lot of a lot of names have gone to BMW. We keep it. Everything looks there, doesn't it? If you went down a tick list of what you need to win the World Superbike Championship, everything's there for BMW, but it hasn't happened yet. So... You know, it's a chance for Top Rack to make a little bit of history, isn't there? If he can yeah, get a bit it. of a slap in the face. I mean, it's, you know, Scotty was could have won a world title in Moto Two just a few years ago. He's been, you know, top line a Moto GP man, Moto Three man, and, and the like. Go back in the day. I mean, it's it's a shame for Scott Redding um, if he gets the the push. Um, will they hang on to Mickey Van der Mark? You know, it's it's kind of it's interesting to see where everybody's going to go. And how that, that that dynamic has now opened up with World Superbikes, um, and who's going to be shifting what seat to where? But um, uh, watch out for BMW. I think uh, I think they might well be, um, you know, a bit of a shock. Oh, we know that Keenan Sofwaglu wasn't keen on MotoGP. There's not one time where you've had the impression that Sofwaglu has, has has kind of been keen to get top rack across into to MotoGP. Yeah, he's kind of played the game a little bit, and you know, he's had to look after his rider's mentality a bit. You know. The, the rider will always want to be looking at the prototype series and if there's an opportunity there. And I'm sure Top Rack was a bit that way inclined, but slowly but surely, Top Rack's come round to the way of his manager's thinking. Um, and good luck to him. And I, as you say, I think that test was crucial, wasn't it? That was that was where they went, okay, see if you like it, see if you're fast on it. Now, of course, 
the only thing with that is, and, and we've spoken about it a lot here, the Yamaha is a is a is a tricky bike to ride. That you just sort of wish, what if Toprak got a chance to ride a Ducati MotoGP bike for a few days or something like that? But anyway, not going to happen now. And it looks like that was the moment, wasn't it? That test was the moment where Toprak would either have gone, yeah, you know, you know, I, I like this, I, I get on with it, I'm, I'm getting quicker, or as we've seen, where people have gone, you know what, it's going to be too big a change, there's too much uncertainty, and it just didn't suit his style, it, style, it seems. So he's made his decision, and but quite a shock, because you say, Keith, for the Yamaha to lose him, not, you know, lose him in MotoGP, if you like, and in World Superbike, that, you know, for him to actually leave Yamaha. Like they're losing their future, Yamaha. You know, we've talked about it week on week now. Um, every week that goes by, you suddenly think, what are Yamaha going to, when are they going to get ahead of the game? They always seem to be falling behind on, on all of these things. Uh, it's, it, it's got to be that I've never known a time at Yamaha like this, where, where everything seems to be, they seem to be running down an alleyway down a, a you know, that's blocked. It'll be interesting to see how they recover, if they recover. Mm -hmm. How the mighty fall. Um, but we don't want that. We always say we're careful what you wish for. We've said that quite a lot in the last few episodes, but uh, with the increasing competitiveness of, of MotoGP in particular as well, you know, and Yamaha um, uh, suffering as well from within that team. We are doing a, a, a proper bonus episode by, uh, by, by the looks of the time. Um, and I want to get one question answered that we had sent in because it was, it was a really brilliant question aimed at Keith um, from Steve and Michelle. My wife and I retired and love you guys on the YouTube. Thanks. Um, we have decided to try to follow MotoGP to as many places as possible. Based on Keith's comments about Mugello, we thought, that would be a good place to start. Neither of us have previously traveled to Europe, so this should be quite an adventure. I've already purchased tickets for Magello. Yikes. We plan to fly from Mexico City to Barcelona, since that seems like a nice place and a good launching point. Since we're already heading to Italy, we decided to go a bit early and see the World Superbike race at Misano the week before Magello. After that, Germany and maybe Assen. We're doing carry-on only, so Assen may be a bit weather prohibitive. We're winging it. We have no tour company. Any advice would be great. Maybe we'll see you at the races. Thanks for everything. Well, I think if, you come, if you're at Silverstone, we're absolutely going to come and say hello. But Keith, so they're flying to, uh, they're going to Misano first, then Mugello, Germany, Assen. Where do they go after that? You know what? I love I absolutely love this. This is the best that we've ever had come in because yeah. you know, to take uh, your time, uh, I, I mean, the time of life, they might be retired at 35. We don't know really what the age is. <laughs> doing very is. well, yeah. <laughs> but the, the fact of the matter is, is that to, to take this on in this way is just, it's my dream. You know, like even though we've traveled the world and done all the tracks and all the rest of it, I've never done it like this couple are doing it. It is an absolute adventure. Fantastic. So, I mean, let's start off with Barcelona. Barcelona, mm. they're coming into Barcelona. Great city. Of course, you've got the tourist areas, Las Ramblas and all the rest of it. You'll do all of that, I'm sure. But taking the beach, you can go, you can walk for like six kilometers each way. Beautiful promenades, restaurants all along the beach. You don't have to be right on the beach in Barcelona. Get just outside of Barcelona, you know, walk from Barcelona, from the from the beach at Barcelona and walk. You can walk for miles, hire a bike. You can hire a push bike or something like that. Do the promenade in bit. You know, see if there's a nudist beach down there, if that all suits you as well. I, you know, I don't go there anymore, so there's nothing to be scared of. <laughs> Keith got barred, yeah. <laughs> but there, 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 are, there are all sorts of things along that beach, and it's beautiful all the way along. Loads of places to eat, loads of entertainment. Barcelona, great place, as I said. And, of course, it is 
the centre of, of motorcycle racing nowadays with, with Dorna and the like. It's, uh, it is the city. Um, Mizano, what a place. You know, you're, you're going to World Superbike, but of course you've got, you know, Catolica, Rimini, uh, Riccioni, which are all the beach resorts that are only a short distance, a really short distance from the track of Mizano, the you know, Marco Simoncelli uh, track, as it's now known as. You've got Tavulia, which is the centre of all things Valentino Rossi. That's that's to the south. It's a, a few clicks to the south. Not very many. It's only six kilometres, something like that. Um, so you've got a ton of things. I mean, Tavulia is Valentino Rossi town. It is everything is forty six and painted yellow. Um, so you've got that to do. World Superbikes around Misano, pretty interesting. I mean, it's a quite a small track. Um, I could probably tell you where you could dig under the fence to get in for free, but probably shouldn't. Um, Go and check out the Nicky Hayden Memorial where, where obviously we've been, been reading a bit about Nicky recently because it's the anniversary of him being killed. I think six years, I think it is. I can't believe it's that long. I think it's six years anyway. Where he got knocked off his push bike, that's just on the outskirts of the track as well. So you want to go, might go and pay homage to, to Nicky Hayden. Um, all the track, you know, the roads around the track are named after famous riders, you know, the, the avenues and the like. Um, go to the, the, the front entrance of the, of the track and just... Hang out, I think is the word to say. Now, hang out for an hour because all the riders and drivers and, and techs and team people basically have to have to wander through that front entrance. And you can you can kind of meet up with people. You can see people, get selfies with them. World Superbike is, is a lot more relaxed than it is with MotoGP, but you can do it with MotoGP as well. Moving on to the big one, Magello. My only slight heart palpitation over Magello is, is that I wonder whether you're going to get the atmosphere that we had pre-pandemic. I think what's happened at Magello is the prices are quite high, as you will have found out when you bought the tickets in advance. Um, the prices are quite high, and it's kept a lot of people away, and, uh, and there's no Valentino Rossi scenario now either. So you haven't got that kind of rivalry, the Max you valentino Rossi kind of thing where it used to fill the, the valley full of people revving up chainsaws and God knows what. Um, so maybe the atmosphere will be a little subdued, but, mate, when you go and stand down the end of that main straight and watch a 225-mile-an-hour motorbike go by, you will be stunned by that. I mean, it is a stunning spectacle. It's a, a, Mugello, for me, is a great place. Now, there are lots of dirt tracks around the outskirts. It's owned by Ferrari, Mugello, so it's a well-organized racetrack. It's a great place to be in, in the month of banking, great viewing places and the like. So I won't go into that. You'll find all that out. But outside of it, there's dirt tracks to different villages and places like that. So if you get stuck in traffic, take your sat-nav with you and make sure it's allowed for dirt roads and things like that because you can navigate to, say, like Borgo San Lorenzo, which is, again, Borgo San Lorenzo is a is a small town quite nearby, got quite good restaurants. Scarperia, which is the, the main place that you will have to go through to turn right down the little lane to get to the track, that will be rammed during MotoGP. But if you go there at certain times of the day, you can, you know, got all the usual sort of stuff. There's usually entertainments going on in the in the in the square there, in the road that the, the car park is in, right through the centre of Scarperia. But again, I I would I would have a look on your map, have a look on your sat nav, and and just take a look at where some of the dirt roads take you, because higher cars, particularly if you're in a higher car, great on the dirt track. You can get just destroy the thing, go through the middle of fields and all the rest of it, and. It, and it's amazing what you can find. I mean, we used to stay at a place that was on a golf course years ago, and there was this dirt track that just took you almost to the front entrance of the bloody of the track. Um, so you would you would go like rallying, 
you know, the amount of people that ended up upside down or in a ditch or whatever it might be with their hire cars bears no resemblance. But but if you've got that on your sat nav, you can find your way around. There's lots of places you can get to without having to be on the road where all the people are and where all the traffic jams are. Have to say, if you are in a car, um, the Italians don't do um, motorway toll booths very well, and they're taking the last few quid out of everything they can, and so the bloody things are backed up to, to Timbuktu, um, which is a real pain. I mean, I've been five hours trying to get out of Mugello, and I can't believe I'm going to say this. It's the only place where I didn't have a problem with that because I'd had such a good time. Um, Mugello, for me, is the, is the centre of the universe. Um, I love the place. I love Tuscany in Italy anyway. If you've got a few days, there are lakes, there are places to go all around there as well. You're, you're only up the road from Florence. You know, There's a back route out. If you come out of the track and instead of turning right, like most would do to go back up the lane to the to the motorway, turn left and work your way out and you go right over the hill and through the forest to Florence in a completely different way. I mean, Florence is a fantastic city, very romantic city. So again, a, a couple like this, if you've got a day or two that you can spend in Florence, um, it's beautiful there. And obviously you can fly out of Florence if you want to. Um, you can fly out of Florence, Pisa, any of those places. That central bit of Italy is just the best. You can go... I was going to say you can go to Imola. Of course, you can go to Imola, but right now it's a river, um, which is a great shame. Formula One having just been cancelled there. I don't quite know how that bears for World Superbike later on in the year or anything along those lines. That's something else that everyone's going to look at. But Imola is, you know, it's in a park. You can go up, up the up the country a little bit and go to Monza. You know, you can go and walk the banking at Monza. You know, if if you're in Italy, you are in the home of motorsport. Mm. You know, bikes and cars. It's, uh, you know, go and have a look at the 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 Ducati factory at Bologna. You know, if you have an opportunity to spend some time in Italy, um, out of the three countries that I have at the top of my list, obviously England where I was born, Thailand where my wife was born and my children, well, one of my children was born, um, and Italy, those are my three. And I'm still in quandary as to where to live in future life. <laughs> Italy, Italy's there. It, it tugs on my heartstrings all of the time. I just love it. A Magello for me, that Tuscan region, is just beautiful. I mean, I'm sold. I mean, what an amazing uh, thing that the, these guys are doing as well. Uh, Steve and Michelle, like everyone always has these things, be like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. They are actually doing it, which I think is so amazing. It is. And I think that it's something, I, I, I'm of an age where I've been losing friends over the last few years, um, sadly for various reasons. Well, when In my young, young days, of course, it was motorbike accidents, car accidents that used to take my friends away from us. Nowadays, it's various um, things that you get or whatever it might be. Um, and one of them in particular, in fact, I'll, I'll, Mick Hemmings, Mick Hemmings Motorcycles, anybody that knows Mick, big Norton man back in the day. When I was 15, I met Mick all those years ago. And he a great friend of mine. And he, and he got to the point where he was just beginning to enjoy his life, just beginning to take cruises with him and his good wife, Angela. And, and really beginning to enjoy himself. Really good guy, Mick. Great sense of humor. Old school. Loved his company. Just got to that point and he just drops down. And that's it. And the point being, the moral to the story is, look at your life. If you have an opportunity, if you're in a position, do it now. Mm. Take that opportunity to do what these two are doing, this couple are doing. What a great thing to do. And if it's in your mind, if, it's in your, in, if you're thinking about it, don't think any longer. Stack the money up, pay the ticket, go and do it. Yeah. I mean, no time like the present. 
agree. You only live once, don't you? I mean, they're going to go. Then they want to go to Germany, maybe Assen, depending on the weather. Well, I mean, you can buy a bloody cagoule anywhere in the world, can't you? I mean, it's uh, Assen. You, you, you know, you can, you're either going to be bloody cooked to death there because it will be like 35 degrees, or it's going to be absolutely weighing it down. Um, it could be either at Assen, but it, again, it's it's a worthwhile place to go to. I'm not, you know, Assen from a racing spectacle is is great. But if you've done Misano and Mugello, you know, I would put them ahead of Assen. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a tick box type thing to go to Assen and go to the Cathedral of Speed, da, 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 da. Um, but as an overall experience, I still think Misano and Mugello beat Assen. Having mm. said that, if, if, if you fancy a riot, Le Mans, you know, you've missed Le Mans. I mean, uh, probably one of the best race meetings that will have been this year from, from all the people, I didn't go, but from all of the people that went that I've spoken to, said it was absolutely fantastic. It wouldn't be my first choice, but that doesn't make me right. <laughs> well, I mean, we're biased, Pete, but go on. Sorry, Pete, you go. I was just going to say, you talked about fan numbers, but, but Saxony yeah. is another one that's usually right up there. So if they're going to, to Saxony, they'll get the atmosphere, I would say, there. So, um, uh-huh. yeah, it'd be quite interesting because Mizano and Mugello Perhaps ticket sales, well, let's face it, Mizano World Superbike is not going to be sold out. Mugello, question mark again. I don't think it looks like it's going to be sold out. Saxon Ring, it will be a big one. And Aston, yeah, if that's a maybe, as I think you said, Harry, you'd want to get your race day tickets sorted for sure if you if you do decide yeah, to go because it does normally sell out on the Sunday. Um, and you've got lots of options when you Saxon Ring. You can go even, you, you can fly to Prague Airport and it's a two hour drive. So there's. there's Prague there's is lovely, of, cheap as can, chips as well. There we are. I so, can mention yeah, some you don't clubs even, in Prague. Yeah, yeah, no, you don't need to mention the clubs. <laughs> they approach you on the main strip trying to get you in them. <laughs> I want to, I want to plug. Like, I want to say go to Silverstone as well, but really that's just so we can meet you because unfortunately I'm not sure you're going to quite get the same atmosphere at Silverstone as you would at, at Misano or Magello. Well, do you know what you say? No, you won't. But you, there is. I mean, Silverstone. Uh, I think Silverstone should take on the Le Mans promoters kind of thinking, whereas they get mm. everybody in and they all stay in. They don't go and destroy it. Le Mans is a beautiful little town, really nice town. But there's hardly any motorbike people that are down in the town comparatively with how many are at the track. They keep them in the track, um, which, is, which is quite clever promotion, really. And I mean, I think Silverstone are, are sort of a halfway house to that at the moment because they've got some good bands on in the evenings. There's always something going on around the track. It's a vast area. Silverstone is so big. You'll need your bloody walking shoes if you come to Silverstone. You know, the mm. few times that I've actually been a punter at Silverstone and I've wandered about, bloody hell, it's like going on a training regime. It's it's a long it's a long day with a lot of miles covered. And am I right this year? Are we in the wing this year? I think we are, aren't we? Yeah. I think we're in the wing. Yeah. So we're on. We're not on the international uh, straight as we would be before, the old pits complex. This will be the first year that we're going to be running in the wing. So miles away uh, and that is miles away from all that yeah you're absolutely right last time that i went to something that was there it was they had to run buses yeah so you do it every year with the f1 you park up um on, on in the grass somewhere you know near the near the national pits and you get on the bus and it takes you all the way to the wing it's like a whole other complex well i mean the other thing is for me is that i don't know whether the, and i'm sure they will have thought about it um you know again are we seeing this motor gp elitism split happening here because moto 3 and moto 2 i don't think there's enough room in the wing or at the back of the wing to be able to run three classes out of there i think they're gonna have to put moto 3 and moto 2 over on maybe the the whatever it is the little 
little track they got in the middle. I can't remember what they call it now. Um, Stow. The- they call it the Stow circuit, don't they? Um, oh, I see. What way you can sort of turn off and come back on yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah. that, that there's going to be a situation where I don't quite know how it's going to work, but the worst case scenario is have Motor 3 and Motor 2 over in the national pits and, and Motor GP over in the wing. Um, I'm not I'm not 100% convinced it's, it's the right way to go. I just can't see the paddock being big enough to cope with it as well as we would like it to be. I hope it's not one of them bloody cluster what's-its. You know, I hope it all works out real well and... Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and and the like but there you go um silverson the promotion is working quite well they're working very hard over there but you're right Mugello and mizano atmosphere wise will kick well, in well if, if you're in silverstone we'll 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 all have a drink uh and i'd say i'd say we buy, but you, yeah well I, I was gonna i was gonna suggest that but they're retiring so it's fine uh, <laughs> but look um Stephen Michelle, uh, keep us up to date with your tour. We'd love to to get some updates as you go. You you emailed the podcast email, so keep them coming, and we'd love photograph. to track your progress. Want to see photographs? Yeah. yeah, send us some photographs. Send us a video or something, or a little voice note. We'd love to track your progress uh, as you go. And and uh, yeah, if you if you if you get through Magello Germany Acid and need some more, we'll just come back. And I'm sure Keith, you say you don't have a tour company. You do. It's Keith Ewan. He's your tour company. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it's brilliant fantastic what you're doing um look we are we've done a, an hour and a half over an hour and a half so i think we get we, we'll call it there but next week we're going to go through the mo- our, our email inbox answer all your questions we're going to talk more about what's going on in motor gp as well because then it's then it's the one more week after that until we're back racing isn't it um so thank you to amy reynolds who joined us right at the start of the show thank you to scott smart who is uh, so uh, fascinating too both of them are could have had them on for a lot longer uh, let us know your thoughts as well on all things uh, the women's motorcycle championship and uh, moto e and, and future technology coming forward do you agree do you disagree with what the guys said We shall be back with you same time next week. But for now, thank you very much, Pete McLaren. Thank you very much, Keith Hewitt. I've been Harry Benjamin. Like, subscribe, review, keep up to date with Crash.net or the website for all things MotoGP motorcycle related. And we shall see you next week. Bye-bye.